Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are continuing our series on the Iliad. We are up to book five, and Shiloh's going to give us a quick overview, and Jeff's going to start us off with an opening question. So all you, Shiloh. Yeah, so book five is the famous book of Diomedes, who is not playing around at all in book five. So he's given what essentially are superpowers by Athena. He uh, has the power to distinguish gods from men, and he has sort of increased courage um, and, and, and uh, war ability. Uh, she tells him, you can only fight with Aphrodite, no other gods, but feel free to just lay waste to the men on the battlefield, which he does. He wounds Aeneas, who's the son of Aphrodite. Then Aphrodite comes to uh, protect Aeneas, take him away. He wounds her too. Uh, he just takes no prisoners. Um, she goes to Olympus, tells her mother, this guy, Diomedes, he hurt me. Um, he tells Zeus this, she's not then allowed to fight anymore. Um, Ares enters on behalf of the Trojans because Diomedes is just laying waste to the Trojans and uh, the tide slowly begins to turn. So toward the end of the book, Hera and Athena come back and begin to aid the Achaeans more. Diomedes actually at the very end ends up stabbing Ares. Ares goes home, complains to Zeus. Zeus is sort of unsympathetic um, because he's a god and his wound will heal. But uh, this is the book of, of Diomedes and it's, it's quite an action adventure from beginning to end. Yeah, it is. Thanks, Shiloh. Um, and I'm really struck by the way the book begins. Um, so the first four books are kind of preludes to full war. And by the end of book four, both the Trojans and the Greeks are uh, going against one another in phalanx warfare. So book five is the first kind of complete war book from beginning to end. And as Shiloh mentioned, um, we start with um, the very first line, and now to Tydeus' son Diomedes, Pallas Athene gave force and courage so that he might prove himself preeminent among all the Argives and win glorious renown. Right? So Athena gives Diomedes force and courage, and the stated purpose is so that he can distinguish himself among those on his own side. Right? There's no real reference to the, the Trojans here, although they're going to be the victims of his uh, force and courage. Um, and then not far after the beginning of the book, um, he's hit by an arrow shot by Pandarus and he kind of hesitates. He wants to go back into the battle and he calls out to Athena and she comes back and she supplements what she gave him the first time. So now not just force and courage, but as Shiloh mentioned, the ability to uh, see the difference between gods and men. It looks like he had some mist in front of his eyes because he had been wounded. She clears that up and she says um, he can now see the difference between gods and men and he can go after um, no god unless it's Aphrodite. He's allowed to wound her. And so I'm just puzzled by um, what it means to have a war um, this kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat in which the gods are involved as participants who are fighting. And I want to know why it's important um, that Diomedes be given this ability to see the difference between gods and men, in addition to the strength that's going to distinguish him from his fellow Greeks. So what's, what's going on with this book? Why does he need to be able to see this? Can we back up one step and say, were they not distinguishable already? I mean, I feel like if I saw a god, I, I don't know, I would, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I might, uh, especially fighting. I mean, so 
I, I maybe I missed something, but were they not distinguishable? Um, and why are they not distinguishable? So my impression is that they're not distinguishable, or maybe the better way to say it is it's not clear. So um, there's one scene, I think it is um, later in this book, where um, Diomedes says he's willing to fight um, Hector as long as, oh no, it's sorry, it's in the encounter between uh, Diomedes and Glaucus, which comes in the next um, book. And Diomedes says, oh, I will fight you as long as you're not a god. Right? So I think the um, starting point is when you see a, a warrior who's doing really well on the battlefield, uh, you say to yourself, that could be that warrior I recognize, that could be so-and-so, or that could be a god. And it's not entirely clear, right? And somehow the, the addition that Athena gives to Diomedes, this is my impression at least, is clarity on this point. Right? But it might indicate that the ordinary human experience of battle is that um, there's something uncanny about it already. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I like the idea of war being uncanny and the idea that the difference between those who succeed and fail is the gods, a.k.a. fate, a.k.a. luck. And it also seems there's something about what you said where you could you could extrapolate it out and say that you have to be godlike in some way in order to put down the fear that you would naturally have as like a human animal in war and you have to be able to turn that off and that that is somehow godlike the ability to turn off fear um which might be different than what we would call courage you're thinking that courage is mastering your fear, but turning off your fear, um, maybe because you feel like you're manifestly superior to everyone around you, that's that's not really courage. And there's something uh, more uncanny or problematic about that second possibility. Yeah, there's something reasonable about courage, right? That that like you said, mastering your fear. You know, there's there's an if A then B then C in my mind of courage but just somehow turning it off turning off that human experience of fear um which seems like what maybe athena's doing to diomedes to a degree with the, with the idea of superpowers not not the clearing of the mist per se but with you know the opening line that you read <clears throat> and giving him what was it in your translation jeff i had force and courage yeah, okay, so I got strength and daring in mine. So yeah, I don't know. It just seems like that there's something something different about that in my mind, but I could be wrong. And But Diomedes, I guess, you know, Diomedes seems like, you know, you, you mentioned before we were recording, like, w the nature of Hector and, and his Achilles-like qualities, and there's something seemingly with Diomedes and his Achilles-like qualities in this, in this chapter. Um, you know, he's put forth as the, the, the best of the Greeks, right? Yeah. Um, which was Achilles kind of thing until he ducked out. So now we have this Diomedes who's now the best of the Greeks and Athena's trying to make him like the best of the best of the best of the Greeks with the superpowers. Mm -hmm. But 
Diomedes. But then there's the, you know, there is the weird thing with Glaucon. I don't want to get too far ahead, but then there's the weird thing of this, you know, not necessarily rage, but, but, but battle craziness that Diomedes has that he does turn off with Glaucus. So is that just Athena's magic wearing off or is that him, um, being more reasonable and saying like, there's other laws aside from the laws of, of war. Uh, there's the law of guest rights. It is, uh, you know, I was wondering about this, the wounding of the gods though. Like what, what do we gain in terms of the story by now knowing that, that the gods can be wounded, but not killed? Yeah, it's it's been a kind of theme for us, hasn't it? That um, there's something problematic about mortality, right? So we were inclined to trace, especially Achilles' um, difficulties, to him being a fusion of God and human, and him uh, being mortal and facing the fact that he's going to die, and so having a heightened need for glory and glory soon under certain conditions, right? Like the conditions he finds himself in here at Troy. Um, and, you know, Agamemnon as well, I think we were um, thinking that mortality probably contributed to his acting the way he does and his interest in maintaining his superiority um, with respect to the other Greeks and with respect to Achilles. And then we saw that because there's a plurality of gods, it looks like um, no god can simply assert omnipotence with respect to the other ones. And so there's some uh, lying that they have to engage in to, to get their way. Um, so it does look like um, if you infuse force and courage in someone to the degree that they're not going to remember their own mortality and to the degree that their mortality is not a consideration for them, you're really um, unleashing them um, with respect to other human beings. Um, so there's something illustrative, I guess, about this episode with Diomedes and uh, your comments earlier, Brian, were making me think that maybe the way to see it is not Diomedes gets these powers at the beginning and then he gets additional powers, but he gets these powers at the beginning and then he gets um, a kind of limitation on these powers. Um, and that means that he's capable of later on, um, before we get, or by the time we get into book six, um, not wanting to exercise abilities that he might still have, right? And thinking more about things like guest friendship, um, in particular, not wanting uh, to go um, after other gods, right? After trying against Apollo. So with, with this, with this Diomedes um, question, Jeff and Brian both, you know, Jeff, you said earlier that it's conceivable that a person could mistake someone for a god who's not actually a god. And so it occurs to me that, um, I mean, are we, are we giving too much weight to the notion that Diomedes is given special powers when it seems to be a, a human experience, uh, uh, or at least a conceivable human experience to perceive another human being acting like a god but oh, they're not a god. In other words, the, that forgetting of one's mortality is, uh, it appears as though a god is not required to give one that feeling because there are times presumably when a man acts that way without having Athena bless him or something right. of this nature. And this only occurs to me because the notion, I'm still very puzzled by the notion that the gods and the men um, were made uh, distinguishable, um, which means that prior to that, they're indistinguishable. And uh, this means that gods and men are similar or I mean, there's some odd um, way in which um, 
God, men can act like gods and you can't tell whether they're men or gods, which really makes gods um, appear more like men. And then you mm -hmm. guys injected into the whole notion that gods can be wounded. Of course, they can't be killed, but they can be wounded. And I'm trying to think about the status of a, of a world and of a theology which, um, in which the gods and the men are indistinguishable from one another, in which the gods can, the gods act like men, the way Ares is like, well, you did this, and <laughs> I'm hurt, and he shouldn't have done, she should, you should punish her. And then the men can also act like gods. Mm -hmm. um, and so if the, and I'm wondering if the men can be mistaken for gods when they're not infused by the powers of gods, can't the gods be mistaken for men <laughs> when they're, you know, um, in a strange way? And I, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of what, what all of this means and what Homer's trying to, to teach about men and gods. Yeah, the question of the gods being mistaken for men. So the, the way I was thinking it through, um, see if this makes any sense. Uh, mistaking a, a human being for a god would be um, looking at a human activity and saying that is so excellent, it must have um, a more than human source, right? And so that might preclude a situation where a god is involved and the god is just mistaken for another human being, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't want to rule out, say, somebody, uh, you know, uh, somebody, there are situations where people are disguised as gods, right? We read about things like that in Thucydides, for example, right? Human beings disguised as gods. And then somebody could say when a god really appears, oh, that's just a human being disguised as a god. That seems to me possible, but it looks like... Um, the experience of real excellence is treated as a moment where the human sphere and the divine sphere are touching one another. In other words, the thing I think that's being denied here is um, a thoroughgoing difference between the human and the divine, right? Maybe only with regard to the battlefield, although there's also things like uh, counseling or rebuking that gods do in their guise as human beings. Um, and those seem to have sometimes excellent effects as well. So yeah, the confusion between the two um, seems especially to be happening in the battlefield setting. And it seems to, um, I don't know, raise the possibility that the stakes in a given battlefield conflict are not what you think they are. Right, because one of the parties involved might not be capable of being killed. Right, so I don't know. That's about as far as I can get with what might be at stake in the confusion and why Homer is interesting in in depicting it. Um, it looks like he wants to depict it and then take it away in the next book, um, maybe temporarily. Uh, yeah, this seems right to me. And maybe the, the way to sum up the question is, what is it about battle that, that could make men act like gods and gods act like men? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what is it that enables this, you know, this, uh, this behavior, brings this behavior out of each party? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the thing about men acting like gods is, is killing each other, right? <laughs> that that in a, in a non-battle kind of situation, the, the thing that kills us is nature. You know, it's either old age or disease or something quasi random, right? Like that, but that is part of the natural order. And so then you ask the question is, is killing another person? Is that natural? Probably not. So if it's unnatural, if it's not 
part of the human experience to kill, then maybe we would associate that with godlike behavior, something that is beyond what a human is normally capable of, and they're expanding themselves into something else that is arguably against you know natural law. And so then you would maybe shorthand call that godlike. Yeah, so you're thinking of something like the um, you know history of the difficulty of getting um, trainees to shoot at the enemy, right? You know, it actually turns out to be pretty difficult to to get uh, people who are learning to be soldiers to um, to fire at other human beings. And you might think that there's something just deeply human and reasonable about not um, engaging in these battles, right? Of having a look at somebody else and saying you know, this is unwise, or I don't need to do this, or there must be another way. Um, but if you encounter a human being who seems just wholeheartedly willing to um, fight and kill uh, somebody else, maybe you say, yeah, that's, that's already something beyond the normal run of humanity there. And, and maybe if they're good at it, and they do it repeatedly, and they seem not to be prone to ordinary accidents or something like that, then yeah, this is a god, or this could be a god. But on the flip side, the the flip side of of God acting like men, that's where my brain kind of short circuits a little bit, and I and I go, yeah, how does that work? Yeah, and by that I just mean they're they're wounded, of course, um, and they have the petty squabbles that you would think gods would would be above. Yeah, and I I think that's I think that's a great way to to ground that argument, right? That the the capability of harm of being harmed of not just harming but the capability of being harmed and you know squabbling is is to a certain degree you know just an emotional reaction right it's not a i I feel like i'm sounding like a sophomore that just read Rene descartes for the first time when i'm talking about reason way too much but um you know not not a reasonable response but a, a very highly emotional response you know that that is like oh why'd this happen to me this this is bad because and i don't want this to happen and it's oh, it's all your fault you know yeah and the, and, the, and, the, and the, this makes sense and the different reactions of the gods i mean aries gets wounded and he's like i'm gonna go tell my dad or whatever the case may be whereas diomedes gets wounded and he's like well you know and he just kind of keeps trying keep soldiering <laughs> on like a man you know what i mean he right. just it's no joke and so um this this occurs to me. Uh, this um, and I, I can't fully make sense of of what this is meant to uh, to indicate. Mm-hmm. But we've spent a lot of time on it. I don't want to belabor it too much. Well, maybe there's one more thing. Does this strike um, both of you as right that uh, part of what's involved in the gods being like men is apparently their outrage that the humans would try something like this. Right. In other words, on the one hand, uh, there are a couple of remarks about how frequently the gods use human beings as their instruments. Right. And that seems to mean, for example, uh, Diomedes is Athena's instrument on the battlefield. She's a partisan of uh, the Greeks. She wants Diomedes to shine with respect to the other Greeks. And she also wants the Greeks to do well with respect to the Trojans. Um, But by using him, uh, it means that, for example, Aphrodite can get wounded. And then there's usually a reaction like, well, how dare you? Don't you see I have ichor instead of blood, right? Don't you, why, why is it that human beings dare to wound 
the gods, they ought not to do this. And that's usually part of the complaint that then gets directed upstairs to Zeus. So it seems like human beings, um, it seems like gods are pretty invested in their difference with human beings, but they don't act um, with the aloofness that might demonstrate the difference. It's like they don't have something of their own that's going on. The interesting thing that's going on is the human thing. Gods uh, want to be partisans in this thing. Um, they don't suffer the same stakes, um, but they, um, they get dragged into it kind of despite themselves. Uh, so again, I guess this just goes into the file marked oddity of the Homeric gods with respect to some, um, I don't know, uh, more straightforward or simpler notion of what a god is, something radically different from a human being, maybe. Um, they're not like that. Um, not even Zeus, I think, is like that. I think partisan is, is maybe the key word there, right? That Yeah. Because as, as you were talking about the gods and the stakes of the gods, you know, I was thinking that football season opened yesterday and all the people that have no stake in those games, like no, nothing that happens on that field will change anything about, you know, any human's life, <clears throat> but they are emotionally involved and more than a few of them, if they got the call, you know, and were up in the stands and it was like, Hey, you with the pretzels, get in here. Like they, they would jump in. Um, so there's something partisan in humans, and it seems like in these gods that wants to be involved in some kind of strife or competition or something that we're just automatically drawn to some kind of group that's competing with another group, regardless of whether or not we really have anything to gain from it. I did want to point out one thing just in terms of the overall story arc that in, in 790 um, of book five, we learn that this is as far as the Trojans have ever advanced. Um, right, yeah. So, let's see. This is Hera and another guy, Hera and Athena. And uh, Homer writes... Like wild doves, the two goddesses strutted forth in eagerness to defend the Argive men, and when they arrived, where the most and the best men stood massed around strong Diomedes, breaker of horses like lions who eat flesh, or wild boars whose strength is unflagging. There, taking her stand, the goddess of the white arms, Hera, cried out like stentor, great-hearted and bronze voice whose shouting cry is as great as that of 50 other men. For shame, Argive's cowardly disgrace is admirable only in appearance, during the time Achilles, the godlike, came to battle. Never did the Trojans go beyond the Dardanian gates, for they feared his heavy spear. Now far from the city, they fight beside the hollow ships. So just something, you know, to point out that we've kind of been curious about in the past is like, what are the Trojans doing to this point? Seems like they're just fighting a pretty defensive war. But at this moment, they decide to push out farther than they ever have. Uh, so just, in, you know, for those that are keeping like a tactical map with some, you know, blue and red arrows, this is, this is as far as the Trojans have gotten so far. Yeah. And let, let's, um, draw out a couple of implications of that. So it, they've been, uh, the Greeks have been in front of Troy for almost a decade now, I think, or roughly a decade. What have they been doing? 
they must have been raiding nearby territories of Trojan-friendly princes, right? That's where we're going to get the um, spoils of war that are referred to at the beginning of the whole dispute over um, uh, prizes that comes from that, right? So the, the, the reason, presumably, they've been doing this is they haven't been engaging the Trojans and their um, force that lives in the city on the field, right? So that endorses the passage or that... that um, uh, uh, goes with the passage that you read, Brian. Um, and we also see it, it makes sense because it looks like the Greeks, um, absent all other interference, the Greeks are simply superior to the Trojans, right? The army that they can field is better than the army the Trojans can field. And so why wasn't this sorted out? Well, the Trojans were keeping to their city. And that just begs a huge question. Why don't the Trojans still keep to their city? Right, this is a winning strategy of defensive war, right? The Greeks are internally divided. This has been dragging on forever. You just hunker down and wait them out, right? And this is going to come up in book six, uh, this whole question of why the Trojans are out there at all. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, probably a good way to end this one. Uh, book five, and then uh, we will be turning into book six. I will throw just a quick plug out to our audience as we actually set up a, a Google Voice number. So if you ever have a question that you wanted to ask, you can actually call us up at 703-596-2027 and leave a voicemail, and uh, maybe we will put your question on air and try to answer it. So 703-596-2027, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, if you have a question for us, just give us a ring, you know, let us know what you're wondering. So uh, thanks, Shiloh. Thanks, Jeff. And we will be back with book six of the Iliad. <laughs> <laughs>